Hello, this is Marissa Schaefer, and I'm here with my final episode of the Dancewell season. Today, I get to share an episode with you on the sacroiliac joint, or SIJ, with one of my favorite PTs and teachers, Dr. Liz Henry. It's Liz and Mark Comerford who have taught me the most about the SIJ, and I find that as a dance PT, I spend a lot of time addressing this joint in one way or another. I also often hear my students and patients come to me with the complaint that their sacrum is stuck or out of place, and I wanted to take the time via an episode to discuss this joint in a bit of detail as it is quite complicated. So on this episode, Liz joins me to discuss things like, does the sacrum move? Does it actually get stuck? And if it does or does not, why does it feel that way? Uh, And what's the function of the SIJ and so much more. Dr. Liz Henry is a senior physical therapist for the Carolina Ballet in Raleigh, North Carolina, and president of Life Force Physical Therapy and Wellness in Wilmington, North Carolina. Additionally, she is faculty and fellowship instructor for North American Institute of Orthopedic Manual Therapy, or NIOMPT. She has been providing care to professional dancers for the past 35 years, and prior to relocating to North Carolina, she was director of Westside Dance Physical Therapy in New York and part of the team providing care at the New York City Ballet. Liz obtained her entry-level training in physical therapy from the University of Vermont. She attended NYU for graduate studies in biomechanics and completed the Doctor of Science in Physical Therapy at Andrews University. Liz underwent fellowship training with NIOMT and was awarded status as a fellow by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. She's a board-certified specialist in orthopedics and is a credentialed as a board-certified cervical and temporomandibular therapist by the Physical Therapy Board of Craniofacial and Cervical Therapeutics. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and I look forward to sharing more with you next season. Enjoy. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, Nutrition, Life Coach, Dance and Performance, Psychological Development, and today you are in for treat. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from, from Dancewell Dance Podcast. Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Hi, Liz, and welcome to Dancewell Podcast. Hi, Marissa. Um, thank you for joining us from down south via the phone. <laughs> we are, I'm looking forward to talking to you about the sacroiliac joint, which um, there is actually quite a bit to discuss here. So uh, happy to have you on. It is a fascinating joint. It is. So let's, like, let's lay some groundwork first. Will you talk to us about what the sacroiliac or SIJ is and what its biomechanical function is as well? Sure. Um, Well, simply put, it is the joint that connects the leg to the spine. Specifically, it is connecting the very bottom of the spine, which we call the sacrum. The sacrum essentially is a triangle-shaped fusion of the very lower lumbar joints, um, vertebrae rather. And it is attached to another bone, called the ilium. And you could consider the ilium as being the very top of the leg. So the ilium bone contains the socket um, for the hip joints. So it is that connection and it is a very unusual joint. There's a lot of myths and fallacies um, concerning this joint, but it is highly unusual. Um, But its architecture is actually designed to make that joint quite stiff while allowing just very slight movements. Um, The joint is designed so that the sacrum can be 
kind of uh, jammed down into this wedge-shaped surface so that there's almost an interlocking mechanism. So we want this joint to be very stable and yet to have just a little bit of give. The other thing that's fascinating about this joint is that um, there was actually a study done by uh, on this where they looked at, um, it was 500, over 500 some odd patients where they looked at CT um, uh, or computerized tomograms of these joints. And out of those over 100 um, joints looked at, there were no two that were alike. Mm. So it's a joint that perhaps may respond to the unique individual's function and movement patterns. Who knows how much genetic plays into that, but it's quite fascinating. We can't really say that to that degree about other joints in the body. Um, we'll talk about does it move or not. I've, al I've already alluded to um, my understanding of how this joint um, moves or doesn't move based on um, my interpretation of the literature. Um, some think that it actually fuses with age, but it doesn't 100%. It does fill with debris and becomes much stiffer and much less effective as a shock absorber. The other interesting thing about this joint, if we compare it to other joints in the body, is that there's no one muscle that directly crosses the joint. However, that being said, there are many that influence its function. And I think what we need to do here um, when considering this joint is not to kind of zoom in on it and shine the magnifying glass on um, what's wrong with it. There are some rare exceptions, but we need to zoom out and look at the region and its role in the region. Um, you asked about biomechanical function. Mm -hmm. So it's function as that connector between the leg and the spine is to absorb and transmit forces from the spine down into the leg. And I also think from the leg up and into the spine. So I see its role as being a great compensator from above and below. Um, and that last bit is something that I think, you know, we'll circle back around to in a second after we talk about whether or not it moves and some more about its about movement. <laughs> um, and I think that's that what I wanted to say is that that's one of the things that you have taught me to look for as it as a kind of uh, as a compensator as part of a bigger picture, which I think will be important to um, to end on in the study you alluded to of the. Um, where they took CT scans of 100 plus different SI joints. Did they say anything? So they said that no two SI joints are the same. Um, you're talking about the articulating surfaces, I presume. And then did they mention anything about how perhaps this varied the 
movement that we at least are taught in physical therapy school um, that we see at the SI joint, like rotation, nutation, counter nutation? It's been a while since I've looked at that study. Um, it is 534 patients. Oh, I did goodness. find my, le- my note on that. And to my best recollection, while we're talking, I'm going to try to pull up that study. Okay. My best recollection was that they looked at many different aspects of the joints. They looked at ligaments. They, looked, they broke the joint down into several sections. Um, they looked at the architectural shape, mm-hmm. and it varied in the upper third, the middle third, and the lower third. Mm-hmm. There were different areas of cartilage, different kinds of cartilage. I don't believe that they looked at movement on the study. There were other studies that did that. look at movement. So you can only imagine, of course, such wide varying um, differences between joints that um, it, it could only affect its role as a force transducer and load absorber. Great. Thank you. Um, okay, so let's talk about this actually debated topic. I mean, you mentioned already that the SIJ does move, but I've heard a few people argue that it doesn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> so can you start to unpack that debate for us? Sure. Well, the latest research that we have is, yes, it does move, but quite minutely. Mm-hmm. It is minor millimeters of movement, thus putting into question, can you really feel it move? But there is a small amount of rotational and translational movement. And again, my understanding of biomechanics is that we want it to move and we want it to move very little. So that is the ideal joint. It is actually designed to move more in weight bearing. And I remember very early in my career talking with an orthopedic surgeon and having this debate. And I was telling him, yes, it moved. I could feel it move. No, it wasn't a lot of movement. And he was telling me, well, I have tried to move that joint during surgery when the patient is completely anesthetized Hmm. and I can't get it to move. And it, in a way it made sense where we were coming from. He was examining the joint in a non-load bearing um, situation situation with a patient lying on the table. And I was looking in weight bearing. So um, maybe neither of us were, were wrong. Right. And of course, in physical therapy, we're looking at it much more from a functional perspective. But do you know what that kind of reminds me of is I, I feel like I can't remember where I heard this. I don't think I read this. So please correct me if I am wrong. But like it, it reminds me of the antithesis of the situation where you have someone lying in supine or on their back and you try to raise their leg straight and it doesn't go very far. But under anesthesia, when you don't have as much input from the nervous system, you can bring the leg up all the way. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. It's like the opposite situation, good. though. It's a, it's a good analogy. 
Um, question though, if it moves so little, like what's what's even the importance of the? And we want it to move though, but what's the importance of the little amount of movement that we get? And again, it's that mix that we have throughout our body and concepts that we learn in our entry-level physical therapy program. It's a very stable yet somewhat mobile joint. And mm-hmm. our joints, if, if we look at all of the joints in our body, some joints are more about mobility and they have very less inherent stability. Mm-hmm. Say, for example, the ball and socket joint of the shoulder. The socket is a joke when you compare it to the socket of the other great ball and socket joint in the body, the hip joint Mm -hmm. that has a very deep congruent socket. The socket for the shoulder is a slightly curved little shelf. And the beauty of that is that it allows a lot of movement and we get our stability mainly through the rotator cuff, the muscles, and other aspects of control of the shoulder blade. Right. So um, uh, just to compare and contrast, we can do things with the ball and socket joint of our shoulder that we can't exactly do in the hip joint. All the dancers uh, do reach that exception. (laughs) Yes. Um, But... uh, at the sacroiliac joint, we it's the opposite of the shoulder. Mm-hmm. We want um, mainly stability so that it can perform its role as that um, force and load transducer between the spine and the leg. But it does that better if it has a little bit of movement. Mm, that makes sense. So you talked about a second ago, you know, having this debate earlier on with um, someone talking about SIJ movement. Like we have these palpatory tests, these tests where we can put our fingers on um, where we believe the sacrum is or the sacroiliac joint is as physical therapists and and allegedly determine whether or not the SI joint moves. Um, but as I think you've alluded to, there's like pretty poor reliability in terms of like, does it like, what can we palpate? Can we palpate its use? Can we actually palpate the structures we think we're palpating? Um, what do you think about the use of these tests? Do you use these, uh, these tests? Um, or, and if not, like what, what do you use? Sure. It's a, it's a great question to ask and having, um, I just started my 40th year of practice. I can tell you that very early on in my practice, I was influenced a lot um, by osteopaths and that I took their manual therapy courses and was probably uh, quite steeped in osteopathic theory. And I spent a lot of time doing these palpatory tests. And what we now know is there's so much variation that we've already alluded to internally within the joint, but there also is externally in the shape and the prominences of the bone. So there are many reasons we can absolutely throw that out. Mm -hmm. Now, I do feel that in a weight-bearing mode, as well as in some non-weight-bearing modes, you can gather information that along with 
other information can take you to the point where you can determine, is it an issue in the problem that your patient has? So I know I've, for a long time, I have not been doing static palpatory tests as I did early in my career. But I do want to make one point in terms of osteopathic theory. Even back then, the osteopaths that I trained in said that unless there's a certain ligamentous dysfunction at the sacroiliac joint, that treat the thorax, treat the lumbar spine mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. that if you start with something as simple as what they called um, fixations of anterior or posterior rotation, that um, uh, you'd only be chasing your tail. So mm-hmm. it, uh, to be fair, it was couched within a certain order of treatment that I would say um, I would still apply in my current treatment. So there's there's so much coming up. I'm going to like put this out there, but we're also going to like, we'll pick it up later in the conversation as we get to like more macro concepts um, is how to have a conversation with a dancer because this happens to me a lot of times where you know, I, they come in and they say, oh, my sacrum is, is stuck. And they expect you to go in and do some kind of, you know, something to address directly the sacroiliac joint. But then you have this bigger, try to have this bigger conversation with them, like, especially in a triage setting, it's difficult. You know, we actually let, we need to go look a little up the chain. We need to go look down the chain. We need to look at your movement and address that um, first. But we'll, we'll get to that. That's just, that stuck up in my mind. Um, can I just go back a little bit? You mentioned um, you've stayed away from static testing. Um, and by st- static, just for those who might not understand, you mean just like looking at a picture of where the SI joint is as opposed to moving or being in weight-bearing, correct? Correct. Great. Okay, thank you. So in other words, um, uh, back then, 40 years ago, um, we would you know line up various pelvic uh, landmarks. So mm-hmm. we would, you know, look, how does one compare to another? Um, how um, deep is the joint on one side compared to the other? And try to then assume something about its function. And a long time ago, uh, we threw this out, or you should have thrown it out. Um, because asymmetry is the norm. So we can't just look at these static positional tests. We know that the little joints of the spine are asymmetrical side to side, Mm -hmm. um, that even some of the um, muscles like um, part of the diaphragm is quite asymmetrical. Our organs are very asymmetrical Mm -hmm. inside. The bones in the area can be quite asymmetrical. So you're just shooting in the dark. What's more important, again, is getting back to the joint's biomechanical function Mm -hmm. as a load and force transducer. Excellent. Okay, so perfect, perfect chance for us now to zoom out, as you mentioned, was more beneficial in the beginning. Um, Can you talk about it? uh, Can you talk about the SIJ as um, a 
transitional area as a uh, as something that is heavily influenced by other transitional areas or other areas of the body. Uh, yes. Yes, that's a great point. So when you look at the potential role for the sacroiliac joint to be in dysfunction, to at the very least start up at what we call the thoracolumbar junction, which is where um, the very bottom of the rib cage, where the vertebrae stop having ribs attached, going down through the lumbar spine to where the mobile lumbar vertebrae now connect with a group of fused vertebrae that we call the sacrum. So then we have lumbo sacral junction and the thoracolumbar junction. And then if we look at the next mobile joint down from the sacroiliac joint, that is the hip joint. Mm -hmm. Now, there are other areas above and below that can also influence, but this would be um, uh, moving back a little bit and looking at the region. In a loaded movement position, all of these areas that I just described, they all work together with each other. They all affect each other. It is hard to significantly change one without changing the role of the others. So that's where we need to focus as a, as a start. Excellent. Can you like, can you give us a couple like specific examples, perhaps like maybe clinical examples of how, these can be interrelated or the uh, what, regional interdependence of the of two areas? Sure. So one thing I'll talk about, it's a concept that I teach a lot in my role in faculty with um, Mayopt, is the victim and culprit mm-hmm. concept. Mm-hmm. So the victim joint might be a joint where your pain is coming from, but the culprit could be a joint somewhere else within the regional system that may not be functioning so well, but may not be painful. So you tend not to think about it as potentially being a culprit. Mm-hmm. So probably one of the most, um, or I'll give you two very common examples that can affect what's going on at the sacroiliac joint. And one, if we look up at the thoracolumbar junction, if that area is stiff or not functioning well, it will um, cause differences in the sacroiliac joint. So if the sacroiliac joint truly is a pain-provoking joint, then it is possible that it became over time stressed, mechanically stressed, so that there was maybe some inflammation. And once you move better through the thoracolumbar junction, it can change that. The same thing can happen if we look below. If there's a stiff, painful hip joint, it can cause some compensation in the sacroiliac joint where that is now involved. And it would be hard to treat truly pain generating um, uh, dysfunction at the SI joint without at least looking into those two other areas. That makes sense. Or perhaps 
um, if you just treat the SIJ and its, you know, its movement in your, let's say, 30-minute session, the chances of that reoccurring would definitely be high. (laughs) And I would say that more often than not, pain at the sacroiliac joint is coming referred pain coming from some other structure. So I don't know if you want to get into this yet, but if we take the dancer that comes in and says, I hurt right here, and Mm -hmm. they're pointing right at their sacroiliac joint, and therefore I have SI pain and SI dysfunction. Well, I always listen to my patients, and I take that very seriously, but the odds are having pain at the SI joint, it is likely more often than not being referred from someplace else. else. Mm -hmm. Now, yes, there are scenarios where indeed it um, can be coming from the SI joint, but the lower thoracic um, spine, so definitely T12, going all the way down into the mid and lower lumbar segments, those can all refer pain to the region of the sacroiliac joint. So it could be any one of a number of those. The other thing is that organs can refer pain right to the sacroiliac joint Mm -hmm. that can absolutely mimic Um, a a typical joint pain. I think back, I had a dancer once that was telling me she had sacroiliac pain. And the number one thing that any healthcare provider who treats this region should screen it. So in physical therapy, we don't order diagnostic tests such as x-rays or MRIs. We could certainly refer patients back to their doctor and ask that the doctors do that if we feel that it is indicated. So the healthcare professional should start with screening for this joint. So as I was screening this particular dancer, the pattern of pain that she was telling me did not fit at all with some kind of a mechanical issue and that it bothered her more at night, that Mm -hmm. night pain was a significant factor for her and that her dancing, she wasn't sure whether just distracted her. She did not report movement as making it worse. So right away with that one statement, um, I identified that she was not appropriate for physical therapy treatment and asked her to go see her doctor. Long story short, her sacroiliac joint pain was referred pain from an issue with an ovary. She had endometriosis Mm. and had what we would call an endometrioma um, at the ovary that was referring to what felt like right in the sacroiliac joint. So um, that is an example where we need to screen. And the first step I do, um, if I hear from the history of the patient that it is behaving like mechanical or musculoskeletal pain is my next question is, um, is this joint a pain generator? Mm -hmm. And luckily we have some great research on that. And I use the Laslet cluster of tests to determine 
whether it is a pain generating joint because there are certain populations that we need to consider in sacroiliac joint pain. So those tests can um, tell us whether we need to consider the sacroiliac joint or whether the pain is being referred to someplace else and go and look at some of those other areas that I mentioned earlier. And I don't know if you want to talk about the Laslet cluster, whether it's too much detail in this format. Um, I think it's enough to say that it's a cluster of, what is it, six tests that are meant to, again, provoke pain. And if a number of them are positive, uh, then that means to look further into the SI joint. Um, exactly. But otherwise, I think I think that's good to stop there with that. I think what is more important to drive home, um, you know, both for the clinician but, but definitely for the patient, is going back to what you said again about um, victim and culprit and about also um, – symptoms versus, you know, you're feeling symptoms in one place versus where is the actual problem coming from, which is that, I mean, you said it very clearly, but just in in synopsis, that even if you have pain at the SIJ, it might not be the SIJ. So let us let us continue to look elsewhere. I'll just add one more thing yeah. about the Lazlet cluster. Yes, please. If I have a dancer that is really convinced that the sacroiliac joint is her problem and that's causing all of the pain. If all six tests come up negative from the Laslet cluster, based on research studies, I can be almost 100% positive that um, and be able to relate and educate my dancer that the pain indeed is not Uh, coming from there that we need to look elsewhere Mm -hmm. to help with that pain that the dancer legitimately feels in that region. Now, there are some populations of concern where um, they are more vulnerable to primary sacroiliac issues. Um, That's um, during pregnancy and shortly after. Mm -hmm. Also, where there's been significant trauma to the area, such as a hard fall onto the the buttock or the hip, or perhaps um, a high force injury, such as a car accident, where there's force coming up through the leg um, from the you know the foot that's on on the brake. Um, different populations that have what we would call spondyloarthritis, like Mm -hmm. ankylosing spondylitis, perhaps rheumatoid arthritis, and other disease processes that are known for affecting this joint, sometimes even as the first symptom. So again, in our screening, we need to rule out some of these other issues. Absolutely. That brings up a point that I, yeah, another question I had, which is, so we have these provocative tests that we test for as as physical therapists and other types of clinicians, but um, is there any type of symptomatology um, that would tip us off in perhaps, you know, the history, taking a history from our our patient, um, that would lead us to perhaps think that this 
um, pain is coming from the SIJ. Like, so for example, like transferring weight, like I have pain when I get up from sitting or something like this. Sure. First that you want to know that it's mechanical pain. Generally the sacroiliac joint doesn't bother you, say for example, in sitting. Um, and its role as a force and load transducer, you mentioned a good point. You may experience it getting up from a chair. You may, in the dancer, you may experience it during a um, movement where the spine is moving towards end of range in one direction and the leg is moving end of range in another. So think about the sacroiliac joint on the stance leg of a dancer doing an arabesque. Mm -hmm. So that's when its role as a force and load transducer is really challenged. Absolutely. So I would look to hear from the dancer, um, when do you feel that pain? What motions, what activities do you feel it? It shouldn't be one of those where I've had a busy day um, in class and rehearsals, and when I go home and sit down at night, that's when it really bothers me. I'm thinking that it's less sacroiliac joint if I hear that type of symptom pattern. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so, Liz, how do you respond to a dancer when they come into your clinic or when you're triaging them at the ballet and they say to you, um, Liz, my sacrum's out of place. Uh, is it really out of place? What's happening when a dancer describes this? How do you educate a dancer on what's going on? Sure. Um, well, I take very seriously that the dancer's telling me things aren't functioning as they normally do. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, I just say, let's take a look. And I go through the process that I'm outlining. First of all, I screen. I want to question the dancer on when it's bothering them. My next step is to do my lavlet cluster. And then if more often than not, that lavlet cluster is negative, then I go and look at the other regional areas that I talked about earlier to see if there's some kind of dysfunction there. And then I use that to educate the dancer. Further, I try to do some kind of intervention, whether it be a joint technique, whether it be um, a motor control drill, and show the dancer how we can modulate that pain. And if you can modulate that pain or get it to go away or get it to improve significantly, you already, as the clinician, can start to make a couple assumptions. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to make sure I include in this that you need to understand pain mechanisms. Generally, especially in a professional dancer, we tend not to see a lot of the nociplastic mechanism, but it can exist. So, the nociplastic pain mechanism would be when pain processing is the problem, not actual tissue damage. So if we can do an intervention in one session and get a reduction or an elimination of that sacroiliac joint pain, prognostically, you can pretty much assume that that patient is 
modulating pain well in their pain processing system, the dancer can see that, oh, yeah, there's a positive change in their pain, and you can educate them as appropriately on what are some factors going on in that pain and how we can give them tools for them to modulate it almost immediately. Mm-hmm. So to get back to your question is what would I say to the dancer that says their sacrum is out of place is a lot of education on how their system works, how we can seek to alter perhaps technique, perhaps change their motor control. Let's take and break down the arabesque and see if we can give you some motor control drills to allow you to perform that arabesque without having pain. That's great. That's a good answer. So it's it's really, it's dependent on, on who's in front of you. Correct. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned like when someone comes in and says, you know, something like this or, or they're having dis- discomfort um, in the SI joint region, you mentioned, you know, doing your scan above and, uh, and below, et cetera, and looking at motor control and so forth. Um, at what point do you include beyond the Laslet, you know, cluster, uh, some of your weight bearing motion testing at the sacroiliac joint? Um, or, you know, even do you even go in at all and do any kind of muscle energy techniques directly to the SIJ? Like at what point does that enter if it enters at all? Sure. Let me talk about another test, and I will say it has not been validated in the research literature. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love if somebody would do that because I get what I feel is a lot of very good clinical information from it. And it came out of one of our uh, senior faculty in NAOPT, Cliff Fowler, and he called it the Portland test because I think that's where uh, he was when he came up with it. But it is basically a test of the functioning of the joint in its load transfer ability. So we're not testing how it moves, but we're looking at the joint. And as a matter of fact, the whole region to transfer load and absorb a displacement of the center of gravity. So this is not only um, useful with dancers, but from any person that might be having sacroiliac symptoms. And basically, the person is in the stance part of gait. So it's where one foot is in front, the other foot is in back, that midpoint where the weight is pretty equal on each leg. Mm-hmm. And in, in that position, you give a little tiny push through and um, right in the line of the direction of the joint, and you compare the patient's stability side to side. Mm -hmm. So when I see there's a big difference, and yes, it is the the side that the dancer's um, complaining of their pain, then I have taken that and I've applied that principle to functional dance positions. So I may have a dancer hold on to a bar just for a little bit of balance and ask them to do, say, for example, um, a bat ma. And I may test that stability very functionally. And again, I can't say it's isolating just one joint 
and compare it to side to side to tell me, do we have a motor control problem side to side? So I am, I am a clinician and I'm not a researcher. So if there are any researchers out there <laughs> listening to it, mm-hmm. um, I believe the test was written up and published in 2004 is the date um, by Cliff Fowler. Um, if there are any researchers or students out there that need to do um, research, I would love if somebody would take that up and seek to um, validate it or, or not. Great. So that is an example of a test that I look um, to determine um, dysfunction of the joint. Gotcha. And does that does that tend to come in kind of as part of your cluster before after Lazlet type of thing, or like where does that fall in your exam? I guess is my question. Sure, that would fall that would follow after Lazlet. So essentially, as a physical therapist looking at a, a dancer that's coming in reporting pain, once I rule out that there's not a primary issue in the sacroiliac joint, then I would look at the region. And perhaps the sacroiliac joint is dysfunctional because it's compensating for something else that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. So once we manage the something else, I like to circle back and see now is this joint doing what we need it to do for the dancer to dance. And we may need to do what I call clean it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that's where I would apply these tests of dysfunction. So can you, um, can you explain a little bit about what you mean by cleaning it up then? Sure. Let's take um, two examples in the lumbar spine where the sacrum will compensate. Mm-hmm. So let's say if there's been a disc dysfunction, we know that in significant disc dysfunction, it's not uncommon that the body's nervous system automatically does something that helps protect the region. The muscles may go into spasm and actually pull the torso out to the other side away to perhaps unload local pressure from the inflammatory process that might be irritating nerves in the area. So that is quite common. But as the issues from the disc resolve, the sacroiliac joint may not necessarily go back to resuming its usual function. Mm -hmm. It may stay in that protective function. So then that's where I will go in and I will do tests of dysfunction to make sure that it is moving in the kind of patterns within the whole region that we would expect it to. So the other example I can give you where there is a instability or perhaps a hypermobility of a specific lumbar segment. And again, the sacrum will adapt to that. And as part of treating that instable lumbar segment and getting it to move better and to have better controlled movement through the region, I will examine what is the sacrum doing in that scenario. And um, let's also include it as part of the process. Sure. I think um, that is a great segue into one of the last things that I wanted to dive into, which 
is are there like common patterns that you see dancers fall into um, where you need to go in and kind of clean up the SI joint? Honestly, not a lot. It is more about treating the hip and about treating the lumbar spine. I think if you stick to the rules Mm -hmm. and look outside the joint first and optimally address those other issues, I often find problem gone. There are some rare circumstances, for example, where there's been trauma. A dancer may have slipped and landed hard on the pelvis. Mm -hmm and may have truly sprained the ligaments. In that case, we're treating primary tissue trauma. So the intervention may be supporting the joint with taping or a belt temporarily and um, addressing, again, more mobility and stability concerns throughout the region. Good. Is there anything else that you want to bring up regarding uh, SI joint or SI joint function uh, that we haven't covered? Well, on the topic of testing, Mm -hmm. um, in general, we see in the the physical therapy business that clusters of tests have generally been more predictive of dysfunction in a region than any one test alone. We've already talked about the LASLET cluster. So if we look at the the test of dysfunction to see how that joint is interacting within its region, again, I feel like I get a stronger picture from clustering those tests. So there are different tests that go by different names, the kinetic test, the stork test, the mangene test, that you can look how the ilium is moving on the sacrum and the sacrum is moving on the ilium. You can look at those in a weight-bearing position. You can even look at some in a non-weight-bearing position. And if you're seeing a consistent pattern, it is possible, not 100% assumed because of the normal asymmetry, it is possible that you can be getting good information from clusters of that test. So if you see a certain dysfunction and it is there and it's different than the other side in every single type of test that you do, then you can um, perhaps form a more solid stance that there is dysfunction of the region. And I would tell you that probably 99 times out of 100, it is doing that in reaction to something Something else. else. Right, right. Um, Liz, thank you so much for coming on this podcast and sharing your knowledge with our listeners. I really appreciate it. Oh, my great pleasure. One of my favorite topics. Thanks, Marissa. Of course. Is there... um, Is there any information that you'd like to share in terms of uh, ways where people can reach you or websites where they could go uh, to learn a little bit more about you? Sure. Uh, You could go on the NAOMT faculty page where I have my um, bio for my uh, capacity um, uh, as a teacher for them. Mm -hmm. 
my um, clinic where I practice in Wilmington, North Carolina is um, lifeforcept.com. You can learn more about my clinic there. Um, I am not all that engaged on social media, so um, I am on Twitter. I am in a limited capacity on Facebook, um, but I will give my email address is Liz at LifeForcePT, that's L-I-F-E-F-O-R-C-E-P-T, like physicaltherapy.com if any listener would like to reach out out to me. Great. And we'll have all that information in the show notes as well. Um, Thank you so much. Thanks again. On behalf of Ellie and myself, I, Marissa Schaefer, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help us to pay for SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a contribution to Dancewell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website at www.dancewellpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.